Now then, let's uh, turn to the book of Ruth again and chapter 3. And the very end of the chapter, the last verse, verse 18. Uh, where Ruth has come back to Naomi and told her uh, what had happened at the threshing floor, Naomi says to her, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. And then, of course, through into chapter 4, we read how Boaz concluded the matter that day. Now, I summarized the history of the book before reading, and the last time we were together, we looked particularly at how Naomi brought Boaz and Ruth together, a matchmaking, people would call it. So it was, but it was under the guiding hand of God. And it involved a lot of boldness on Ruth's part. We saw that, how she had to take the matter in hand, in faith, and go and lie at Boaz's feet at the threshing floor. But just as she came under the wing of her mother-in-law in Moab, and then came under God's wing when she exercised faith, she has now come under Boaz's wing. Because when she asked him to lift the cloak in which she was sleeping over her, she used that expression to come under his skirt, uh, just as Boaz had spoken of her coming under the wing, the protective wing of God. And there's no doubt that Boaz is to her, uh, and to us as we look at it, uh, a redeemer, and in that respect a type or a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he functions in this book. He is the kinsman redeemer who buys Ruth back. And in that respect, he, in that respect, he brings Christ before us. And her attraction to him is a picture of our spiritual attraction to the Lord Jesus Christ and the need that we have to come under his refuge and his protection. Now, of course, these things happened uh, after a few uh, weeks passing during the time of harvest time. Ruth was gleaning all that time in the fields of Boaz. She got to know him, and he got to know her, and there was love and respect growing between them. And with this act, uh, and Boaz is really surprised by it, but with this act, she declares her love for him. And the way seems to be open, really, for them uh, to be married and to be married quickly, except that Boaz, uh, that night at the threshing floor, introduces a problem, a problem that he's obviously aware of. The problem revolves around a piece of land that Naomi is selling, and particularly around another man who is a closer relative uh, to Naomi than he is himself. Now, this piece of land is perhaps surprising when we consider how poor uh, Naomi actually is. 
She left Bethlehem wealthy. She wanted to maintain that wealth and stepped outside of God's will. And she's actually lost everything in the process, except this piece of land. Now, when you come back after sojourning, say, 15 years somewhere to a piece of land, it's not really all that useful. It's overgrown, and it's not able to feed her there and then. And the need of Naomi and Ruth was immediate. They had nothing. They really had nothing at all. She's got no means to hire anybody to work the land, and she can't use it. She needs the money, and she needs it right away. But there was a provision, there was a command in the law that land had to stay in the family. You were not allowed to sell it outside the family. And statute law in Israel required that the first option had to go to the closest relative. And then if that person declined, it would move to the next person, and so on, and so on. So statute law required that. It seems that common law required that if there was a widow involved, then the redeemer of the land would marry the widow and raise a child who would perpetuate the name of the deceased person so that the land would remain in that family. It's like the law of the leverate, which I'm not going to go into because it's impossible to go into it without getting lost in it, really, unless you're giving a lot of attention to it. But it's rather like that, and it seems to be a common law, um, stronger than a custom in Israel, that if a widow is involved, then the redeemer of the land would have to take the widow, provide for her, and raise a child for the dead husband. Now, when we consider all that, I think Naomi's plan uh, becomes a lot more clear. First of all, it seems obvious that Naomi has raised with Boaz already the possibility of Ruth becoming his wife. And she's raised that possibility out of a spiritual concern. Not Like I mentioned last time, it's not someone who's just meddling, trying to sort something out. She is seeking genuine rest, remember. She's seeking rest for her daughter-in-law. And she sees something in Boaz that she knows is what her daughter-in-law needs. And she's raised that with him. Now, Boaz, on his part, um, doesn't see it, although he's attracted to the woman, and he's spiritually attracted to her. We've seen that, and Hope emphasized it, that he is drawn to her self-sacrifice, her devotion to her mother-in-law, and the fact that she has left her old religion and her custom and her ways of life and has attached herself to the people of God. Now, he's deeply attracted to all that, but he feels that he's too old and that really she deserves to marry somebody who's much younger than himself. But, of course, Naomi has this deep sense in her spirit, as we sometimes can have, that they are for each other. Ruth loves him, evidently, and he loves her. And what Naomi does is she shares with Boaz uh, that if Ruth shows an interest in her, then he must be prepared uh, to buy the land and to take Ruth as a wife, to perpetuate the name of the deceased. In other words, the interest in the family would be divided. 
It would go partly Elimelech's way, and uh, it would go his own way. But then Naomi tells him that there is a problem, that there is a, a nearer relative who has the first claim to the land, and therefore the first claim uh, to Ruth's hand in marriage. Now, in one way, I suppose we would be inclined just to admire the honesty of Naomi and Boaz in the matter, and, and so we should. But we have to recognize that in many respects they had little alternative. Uh, Transactions regarding land and marriage are public matters, always have been, always will be, always should be. And uh, if the land was sold in an underhand way to someone who was not the realest nearest relative, and if Ruth's hand in marriage was given to somebody else, it would be known, it would be discovered, and there would be a terrible price to pay. <clears throat> but even allowing for the fact that it was sensible uh, to make the matter public, it's still important to commend it. It's still important to recognize that they were both determined to do the right thing and to be seen to do the right thing. Even if it was just common law practice to take the wife in marriage, they didn't try and split the matter, just have Ruth's wife and forget the land or whatever. There was the responsibility, the responsibility of the land and the inheritance. That mattered because God said it mattered. Boaz could simply have married Ruth and just leave the land or let someone else have the land, but he wouldn't do it. He wanted to do what was right and to be seen to be doing what was right. And that's an important thing for ourselves all the time to remember. Sometimes uh, you can do a right thing and it can be misconstrued and people may not realize it's a right thing. And if people, let's face it, if people want to speak ill of you, they can speak ill of you anyway and they'll speak ill of you for doing good or for doing evil. But if a thing can be done openly to the satisfaction of people, uh, let it be done that way. And that's the manner of Boaz and of Naomi in this transaction. Now, Ruth doesn't know any of this. All Ruth knows is that her mother-in-law has asked her uh, to go down to the threshing floor that night and obviously to her to make plain her own love to Boaz. And Boaz responds by saying, I am your relative, but there is a closer relative, and I need to take care of it. And so first thing in the morning, he does take care of it. He goes to the city gate. Now, he goes to the city gate for two reasons. First of all, because in a small town like this, at harvest time, every single male person passes through it. It's as simple as that. The second reason is because at the city gate, uh, justice is dispensed and business is transacted. Um, it's not the marketplace, but this is the place where important, significant things happened. It's as near to a local parliament as you can get. The elders would sit at the city gate. You'll remember that's where Absalom, for example, judged the smaller cases and kept saying, oh, if I was the king, I would do such and such, but my hands are tied. And he stole the hearts of Israel at the city gate. Now, Boaz gets ten elders of the city uh, to sit down and to witness what happens. And uh, after a while, the relative passes through the gate. 
And Boaz calls him aside, sits him down in the presence of the elders, and he explains the situation. He says, Naomi, a relative, has land, and she's wanting to sell it. I am prepared to sell it, but the right of redemption, to buy it, but the right of redemption is actually yours. And the man says, I'll take it. I'm happy to buy it. And then Boaz says, but with the land comes Ruth the Moabites. And for the nearer relative, that's a game changer for some reason. He says, I don't want to ruin my own inheritance. In other words, he already had children, and this was going to muddy the waters. It was bringing in another family. It was going to cause disruption and confusion. But it's important to notice just a a, a couple of things about this man here. Um, First of all, he's got no burden for the name of the dead relative, which ought to have been important to him. Uh, The land was to stay in the family, and the name of the person, if at all possible, was to be perpetuated through the widow. Now, he didn't seem to care for the dead relative, for his name, he can perish, he can disappear from the face of the earth. Of course, too, he's got no care for the widow. He he does have a concern for his own existing family, but he doesn't have a concern for this poor Moabites and the fact that she has no child. And really, you can't help wonder if this is the real reason why he refuses the thing in the first place. That it's not so much um, any muddying of the waters with respect to his own children or his own inheritance, but the fact that he doesn't really want to take Ruth as his wife. And it's interesting that in this verse, there's an emphasis on the fact that she is the Moabites. Now, Boaz says that, and Boaz calls her that, and perhaps Boaz is emphasizing that because he's saying maybe he's trying to discourage the man. Maybe he is. It's only natural that he would think that way. You must take the hand of Ruth the Moabites. And he doesn't want Ruth the Moabites. Maybe he's one of these harder Israelites that came to predominate, the kind of Pharisee type. Instead of true faith in the true God, they ended up having a frosty, cold type of religion that froze into a kind of nationalism or even racism. There were many like that when, uh, well, some people say that Jonah had a touch of that, although I don't think that's fair. But certainly, in later years, they were like that. The Gentiles were the dogs. They came to be known as the dogs. The people who, do, who, who, who were not of the outward church were dogs called uncircumcision by those of the, of the circumcision. In other words, they take the badge of their identity as such, and, and that's all they are. They are the uncircumcised. They are the unclean and the impure. We always have to beware that we never see people in that kind of way, that we don't just brand them and develop a distaste for them and a dislike for them. Uh, What's interesting about this man, by the way, is that he's so concerned about his own name, his reputation, and his inheritance, and the strange thing is that he's actually written out of history. The book of Ruth closes with the descent of Boaz and Ruth 
their children, down to David, the great king of Israel. And of course, it extends into the New Testament to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But this man's descendants, well, who are they? Nobody knows. And that becomes particularly important because when Boaz calls him in chapter 4, verse 1, come aside, friend, and sit down here, it's actually an unusual expression in the Hebrew. It's not the normal word for friend. It's not the word for relative. It's a word that just means so-and-so. Very, very unusual. It's almost a way of describing somebody who's nobody. It's as though the Bible deliberately obscures the identity of this person. It's very hard to think that Boaz actually addressed him in that way because he would have known who he was. Bethlehem was a small town, and he was, after all, a relative of his own. But the words used here are obscuring the name and obscuring the name in such a way as to make the person a nobody. And it's fair enough at the end of the day because what will make us a nobody is to refuse the grace and the mercy of God, to refuse God's law and to refuse God's salvation, to refuse God's law and not to be kind and gracious to God's people. In other words, if we don't love the law of God and if we don't love the people of God, we don't love God himself. I don't know what concern this man had for his own inheritance and so on and so on, but he didn't show concern for what God wanted him to do with the land and for what God wanted him to do with the widow. And, of course, we're told in the Scripture that these things are the acid test, really, of, of our, own, our own faith. I assume the man was a widower. He must have been. But God tells us, uh, John tells us, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Neither is he of God who does not love his brother. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother or sister or sister in need and shuts up his heart from him or her, how does the love of God abide in him? Again, chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother practically, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, his visible brother, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So this man, at the end of the day, just doesn't care for the law of God and he doesn't care for the people of God. He doesn't come out well. So his name is not perpetuated. His name is obliterated from Scripture because his name is obliterated from the, from the ranks of the living. His name is not in the book of life, he's self-obsessed. And even his love for his family is just an extension of his love for himself. Now, Boaz, on the other hand, couldn't be more different. You'll notice that Boaz doesn't just want to marry Ruth. When the transaction is completed here, I want you to notice carefully what he says to the people in verse 10. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahlon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, 
that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses of that this day. He cares about Elimelech and Elimelech's sons, and he wants to perpetuate their name, and he's happy for his child, if he has one by God's grace, to perpetuate the name of the dead man. The dead man. He cares about the inheritance. He cares about the land. He knows God's command that the land stay in the family, so he wants the land to stay in the family. And he cares about Ruth. The night before, he declared her a virtuous woman because she could have used uh, her own beauty, if she wanted, to, to seduce Boaz the previous night. She could have used that at a time when he might be weak and exposed to that after feasting, uh, after a day's hard work at the harvest, but she didn't do it. And he recognizes and respects that because he's a virtuous man himself and he recognizes her virtue. And that's one of the things that makes her so pleasing to himself. And he cares about her. And in this love that he has for her and the desire that he has to redeem her is something that constitutes a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in his love for us and his desire to redeem us. Now, when we looked last time at uh, Ruth's love for Boaz, I read a passage in the Song of Solomon which brought before us the ideal man. Um, he's described um, in his, all his stature in the Song of Solomon. And she, she describes, uh, My beloved is white and ruddy, his head like the finest gold, his locks are wavy and black as a raven, and so on. Down to his mouth most sweet, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend. It's an ideal man, the ideal man. But of course in the Song of Solomon, which is a picture, you remember, of Christ and his people, there is also a description of the ideal woman. When he looks at her, she sees his beauty as the king, but then the king <clears throat> looks at his wife. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, prince's daughter. The curves of your thighs are like jewels. Your navel is like a rounded goblet, lacking no blended beverage. Your waist is like a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabim. Your nose like the tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. The hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are with your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, your breasts like its clusters. I will go up to the palm tree, I will take hold of its branches. Let your breasts be like the clusters of the vine. The fragrance of your breath is like apples, and the roof of your mouth is like the best wine. The wine goes down smoothly for my beloved. I am my beloved's, and his desire is towards me the perfect woman, the perfect woman. 
Now, in some ways, we can understand that quite well. At least we can understand how the man is the perfect man. Because in our Savior, in our Lord, uh, there is no flaw, there is no spot, there is no blemish. He is altogether worthy. This is my beloved, the fairest among 10,000. No one comparable with him. But it's very different when it comes to ourselves. If this woman is a picture of the church or a picture of the believer as she is, then how does it really fit? Him as the perfect man, yes. But you, are, are you the perfect woman? Are we the perfect bride? Well, yes and no. <clears throat> because this is really a picture not so much of what you are, but a picture of how Christ sees you. And it's a picture of how Christ sees you because it's a picture of what you one day will be. In other words, he's not seeing something that's unreal. He's not just imagining you to be this, having no right to imagine it. He's imagining you being this because you are in the process of becoming this. And as far as he's concerned, that is how he sees you. That's how he always sees you. I say quite often, just by way of jest sometimes, to, to couples, well, it's not really by way of jest. Uh, it sounds like it at the beginning, but I say to couples when they come to get married that, uh, that there was an old saying that a man takes a woman for what she is whereas a woman takes a man for what she thinks she can make him. And usually when I say that, the, the men don't really know how to respond, uh, but the women have a bit of a smile on their faces because uh, they know that to be at least partly true. And the chiseling work begins from that point onwards on the woman's side. I say it partly in jest, but I think it's partly true. But it's certainly true when it comes to this relationship. We take him as he is. He takes us because of what he will make us. And he always sees us in that light. <clears throat> he couldn't take us any other way. It would be impossible for this marriage ever to take place if sin was just going to remain undealt with, unchecked. If we were just going to be as we always were, it would be impossible for him who is of purer eye than to behold iniquity to ever marry us. But the day of consummation is coming. We are being prepared for this marriage. We are being prepared. The, the daughter of the king, all glorious, is within. Within there is not a reference to internally. It's a reference to within the chamber, in the place of preparation. Right now we are espoused to be the Lord's. We are espoused. And the preparation work is going on, as Psalm 45 describes it, with garments wrought with gold, needlework of gold, a divine thread. God is making his work, and he's making us beautiful to be presented in marriage before the Lord, without spot, without blemish. And that's how he sees us. Of course, 
Of course, in one sense, he sees us as we are and deals with us as we are. Of course he does, but in another sense, he sees us as we will be. We are always beautiful in the beloved because we are being conformed to that image. And I think, Christian friend, it's important to recognize that the moment you come under the wing of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he doesn't see you the same anymore. And you're not to see yourself in the same way anymore either. You're always to see yourself in him, to remember that you are in him. When you feel so defiled and unclean and impure, that's not how he sees you. No crookedness in Israel, no perverseness in Jacob. It's almost unbelievable, but that is the truth, and you need to remember that. And perhaps, you know, perhaps it would help us all quite a lot if we started to look at each other in that light as well. What we are in Christ and what we shall be one day instead simply of what we look at right now. Uh, that can be quite a transforming thought. <clears throat> it's rather like the thought, uh, it's slightly different, but it's rather like the thought I brought before you, well, a few months ago. It was in connection with God having his own people from eternity, and they're out there, and you have no idea who they are. But the fact that they are out there, and that they're amongst um, just the ordinary rank-and-file people of the world should make you think long and hard about how you deal with everybody. That could be, it could just be, a child of God that is speaking to you in the sense that one day they will become a Christian. They are already known by God and already loved by God from the foundation of the world, and God already sees them in Christ Jesus. How carefully we need to speak with them and handle them even when they are sinners and children of wrath as you were yourself, that could just be someone beloved by God. That can change how you deal with everybody, can it not? Well, it's similar here. It's similar. Learn to react and interact with Christians as people seen by God without spot and blemish and people who one day will be without spot and blemish. And if that is so, then let's bear with the spots and bear with the blemishes. Now, that's not, <clears throat> that's not just giving a license to sin or a license to ignore sin in anybody else. In fact, the Bible tells us that um, it says, for example, in Leviticus 19.15, or is it 15.19? I think it's 19.15, that you shall um, not hate your brother in any way, but you must rebuke him. Do not hate your brother in the heart, but rebuke him. Notice the interesting contrast there. Uh, to hate your brother in the heart is to, to leave him or her in their sins, whereas to help them out of it, sometimes by confrontation, but a genuine loving confrontation is, is loving your brother and your sister and bringing them on in the image of the Lord. Now, see Christians like that. See them as Christ sees them. Sees them as Christ sees them now, justified. See them as Christ sees them one day, as beautiful as this, as beautiful as the bride in the Song of Solomon, because that's what they will be. That's what they will be. So the Pharisee doesn't want Ruth the Moabites. 
but her Redeemer uh, does want her. And as well as her name and her security, he buys back her inheritance too. That's what our Redeemer does for us as well. He gives us a name. Uh, He introduces us into his own family. We are called suddenly, miraculously, sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he buys back the inheritance that Adam lost. uh, A new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. He buys your portion in that. And he buys my portion in it too. Now, as Boaz does this business at the gate, uh, Ruth and Naomi are waiting at home. Wait, sit still, my daughter, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. I can't help but feel that the sitting still there is to be taken also in a spiritual sense. Two things, I think, involved in it. First of all, there's just the simple matter that the woman is agitated. When she went to the threshing floor and declared her love for Boaz, she had no idea that this was in the way. This seems to put a cloud over everything. And the the hope that she has, that she may be connected to this man forever, is suddenly cut off, or nearly cut off. But Naomi just comes to her uh, spiritually and says, just, you sit still and wait. It's out of your hands. It's in his hands. But this waiting is not inactive. Remember that in connection with waiting in the Bible. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. At length to me he did incline my voice and cry to hear. Waiting is always an active thing. Remember that. It's never a passive thing. You don't wait and twiddle your thumbs in the scripture. You wait prayerfully. You are, there's an interesting expression in the larger catechism when it tells us about uh, how to pray for the coming of Christ. We're told that by our prayers we hasten his coming. It's a strange expression. Um, I think, well, as well as having a general theological background, I, I can't help but wonder if some of it comes from the Song of Solomon where when the church awakens, we're told that her beloved comes over the mountains in haste to meet with her. In other words, as the church's desire for her Lord grows in a time of great spiritual revival, the Lord comes back, can we call it, in a hurry, in a holy haste. And this kind of waiting here is a waiting that's calling on God to intervene and to act. She's praying, and Naomi is praying, dependent upon God. She's, <clears throat> she's waiting um, as someone who knows that her future depends on what um, Boaz is going to do. I think in some respects, secondly, there's a kind of picture of ourselves too in our salvation there because when it comes to actually having Boaz in our lives or having a great Redeemer taking us under his wing, there's an element of, oh, on the one hand, you've got to come under his skirt. On the other hand, there's nothing you can do. In the sense that in terms of the redemption itself, we've got to recognize that that was his work. He's done it. He does it himself. I think in that respect, actually, there's something else in this too. 
I can't help but see Ruth as a kind of picture of the Old Testament church waiting for her Redeemer. We sang Psalm 20 there, May God hear you, O King. Lord Jesus, may God hear you in the day of your trouble. You have there the Old Testament church uh, praying in advance for the coming Messiah that God would keep him and preserve him and take him out of his troubles. Uh, She can't do anything for him except pray that God would preserve him. When uh, Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, just for a while during the Lord's ministry, they spoke to him about the death that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Remember that? Literally in the Greek, the exodus that he would accomplish. I think we defined that at the time as a, an exodus uh, from the power of hell, an exodus from the grave, and an exodus from the earth to the right hand of the Father. They spoke to him about all that. They spoke to him about it because <clears throat> they were already speaking about it in heaven. It wasn't a new conversation for them on the earth. It was a matter of the most intense interest in heaven. It always was. How closely the saints in heaven followed the ministry of Christ on the earth. It's a shocking irreverence to think that they were doing anything else. A shocking irreverence. Was not every single redeemed soul interested in every step the Savior took? Were they not accompanying him in their spirits? every step of obedience up to Calvary and beyond. And when Ruth here is waiting and sitting still, waiting for her Redeemer to transact on her behalf, we have a kind of picture of the church there too. And we thank God that this great transaction was done for us, not by us. And when it's done, her redemption is complete. There's a kind of twofold picture of it. On the one hand, you've got her leaving her people, her kith and kin, and her old ways and her old religion, and stepping into the promised land. And now you have the picture of being actually redeemed inside the land by Boaz. These are two parts of one whole. They have to follow consecutively just because of events. It's a bit like the sacrifice of the goats on the Day of Atonement. There are two goats, you remember. One receives the sins of the people on its head and it's set out into no man's land. The other goat is slain and its blood brought into the presence of God. Two goats because the two things couldn't happen to one goat. But the two halves have to be understood together to get the complete sacrifice. That's the same here. Take Ruth, forsaking, leaving and cleaving. And here take her redeemer, purchasing and buying her. And Ruth's status is complete. And the men of the land who witness these things, the minute Boaz says it, you know, in the presence of the elders, I've acquired Ruth the Moabites as my wife, and I've acquired the land. The people at the gate and the elders said, The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah who built the house of Israel. 
and may he make you prosper in Ephrata, and may he make your name, as it were, to be famous in Bethlehem. Uh, in fact, it seems that the spirit of prophecy almost comes upon them. May your house be like the house of Perez, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. It's as though they know there will be offspring. There's a reason for these events. They, they just know that. Sometimes things happen and you just know there's a reason for them. And the Spirit of the Lord moves them to say there will be a child. And of course the child is Obed. Uh, but his child is Jesse, Jesse and his child is David. Move on the generations and you have the seed of promise, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it not interesting in the context of this book and of this story that after years of barrenness in Moab, she's hardly stepped into the land of Israel when she immediately becomes fruitful with a child? Our lives outside of Christ are fruitless, but in Christ they become fruitful. Ruth is brought in a reminder that God does not hate the Gentiles. He gives privileges as he sees fit, but it was always his purpose to bring them in. And here someone who's disliked by a Pharisee is loved, greatly loved by God and loved by Boaz. Now I could leave it there, and this morning I am, but I want to return to it, God willing, next Lord's Day, because you'll notice that the book doesn't finish with Ruth. It actually finishes with Naomi. And that's how the book started. I remember saying at the beginning that it could be called the book of Naomi. Uh, in many ways it is. Because the spotlight returns to her in her closing years. And we'll honor that. And we'll take one more look at the book. May the Lord bless our thoughts on his word. Let us pray. Eternal God, we praise you for our Redeemer and his love, one who came to take bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, so that there is no nearer relative, one who was prepared to purchase ourselves, though there was nothing to commend us. One who was prepared to keep the land and to make it ours, and one who was prepared to transact on our behalf. We ask, O Lord, to respect him, for he is our Lord, to give him our obedience and our love and all our affection. We pray to follow the examples of these good and godly men and women in the scripture, that we too may have a true kind of name in this world, not the name that the world seeks through fame and celebrity, but the kind of name that endures, being written in the book of life, just like the great cloud of witnesses in the epistle to the Hebrews. That even if we are obscure in our own way in this world, we may still have a name that lingers when the names of others perish. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Our last singing is in Psalm 45 on page 58. And we sing to the tune Peter Sham. This is a companion psalm to the Song of Solomon, and uh, it opens with the beauty of the king. Uh, Then in verse 10, well, verses 9 and 10, the focus turns to the queen, to the church. And in verse 10, daughter, listen and give ear, consider what I say. You must forget your father's house, your people far away. We've often thought about that in connection with Ruth. And now, because your beauty is so great, there's the Song of Solomon again, it's astonishing that God sees us that way, the king is held in thrall. He is your Lord. Give him respect. Before him, humbly fall. And then when they come together, the strangest people will come too. Inhabitants of Tyre will come to offer gifts to you, and wealthy people will approach your favor to pursue in glorious gold embroidered robes the princess waits within, in richly ornamented clothes she's brought before the king. Attendant maidens follow her, and so to you are led. They enter, and with great delight the palace courts they tread. And now this sees their offspring as having name and status in the new heaven and in the new earth, in places where your father stood, your sons will take their stand. You'll make them princes of the realm to rule throughout the land. I will perpetuate your fame through everlasting days. Therefore, the nations of the world will ever sing your praise. I will sing verses 13 to 17, the last four stanzas. Let's stand to sing. Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.